As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Hey there, welcome back to yet another episode of Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And this week, I hope to really lift your spirits because my topic is low points in your life. You're going, huh? That sounds depressing. Well, yes, it is, but there are silver linings, and that's kind of what we're going to focus on because my feeling is look, We all experience low periods in our life. Certainly these last two years, or five if you want to count the Trump presidency like I do. But but this was more of a shared low experience, okay? Now, there are low periods of your life, which is what we're going to talk about. And then there are horrendous periods, terrible sickness, uh, you lose loved ones, catastrophic loss of property, your home is destroyed in a hurricane, whatever. And, And I would tend to categorize these as more of crises than low periods in your life. So A, I'm hoping that's not you. And B, I'm going to be talking about these low points, when you go through terrible slumps, when you can't get a job, when you have a bad breakup, when you have a loss of confidence, when you're coping with depression, that type of thing. Uh, And I don't know anybody who hasn't experienced some form of that, even very successful people. You know, you think that certain people lead charmed lives. They don't. There's always stuff that they have to cope with. I myself consider myself a very successful person. I also consider myself extremely lucky. And yet, I have had more than enough of these rough patches. But often, when I look back, I see that uh, a lot of good came out of them. Now, I didn't realize it at the time. At the time, I was just miserable. But upon reflection, you know, I saw that, yeah, there were some silver linings to this experience. So that's what I'm going to talk about this week, uh, a few of my 
rough periods and how I was able to come out of those with, you know, certain growth opportunities, um, certain things that guided my career and my life in a certain direction that would not have gone in that direction had it not been for this rough patch. So see, it is ultimately going to be uplifting. Okay. Okay. First one for me is the army. And I've told this story before, but you go back to 1969 and we were in Vietnam and they were calling up just about every young man they possibly could. And to make it quote unquote fair, they set up a lottery. And what they did is they had 365 ping pong balls with birth dates, January 1, January 2, January 3, etc., etc. And they selected those balls at random, just like your uh, you know, TV lottery that uh, your state might have. And if you were like selected one through like 130, you were pretty much guaranteed that you were going to be drafted. From like 131 to like, 211, eh, you were in the iffy stage. They might call you, they might not. Beyond that, you were safe. Okay, so if you had a, a number of 278 or 331, you were not going to go in the Army. You were absolutely golden. My draft number was four. That's right, four. Needless to say, that night I was apoplectic because, I, I, you know, Vietnam, yikes. Me, me, a soldier, yikes. And uh, so I was able to get myself into a reserve unit, an Armed Forces Radio Reserve Unit. At the time, I was a sports intern at KMPC Radio, and uh, Roger Carroll, one of the disc jockeys, was also one of the disc jockeys for Armed Forces Radio. So he was able to, to get me in. And so that's the good news. And the bad news is, if you were, and I guess it's still the same today, in the reserves, here's what that commitment meant. Number one, six months of active duty. You had to go through regular basic training just like everybody else. Then you had like three months of individual training for whatever your specialty was, which could be infantryman or, in my case, public information officer. Then you had two weeks of Army on-duty summer camp. And then you had 16 hours a month of meetings. And those were usually either a weekend of Saturday and Sunday once a month, or in the case of my unit, one Saturday and two Thursday nights from 7 until 11. And here's the kicker with this. The commitment was for six years. And what was always hanging over your head was the fact that you could get called up at any time. And this has happened quite a bit. It happened a lot in Korea. It happened a lot in Desert Storm, where 
reserve units get called up to active duty. So if there is some skirmish anywhere in the world, you could wind up in Jordan or Yemen, Bosnia, wherever. You have no say in it. And this ticking time clock is hanging over your head for six full years. So there's a lot of anxiety that uh, comes about as a result. Like I said, I had to go through basic training, which for me, because I'm uncoordinated, not athletic, I don't know how to build anything or take apart guns or set up tent shelters, and I don't know what entrenching tools are for. Um, I was the worst. It was miserable. Plus, I'm an L.A. kid. I'm used to the sunshine. I got sent to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, which is in the top of the Ozarks in the winter. And snow is howling, and you're on some rifle range. And, of course, it being the Army, uh, the menu is the same for every Army unit in the country that particular day. So it's December. I'm on the rifle range The wind is howling. There's nothing to cut off the wind. It's a wind chill factor of four. And the dessert is ice cream. (laughs) This is what we get. Okay, and it's kind of an indication of what it is like in the Army. So, I mean, that's another whole episode is my exploits in basic training. It's a wonder that I ever graduated. But I did, and I had to put up with all of this, and you go, God, this is really horrible, especially when you consider that if I was born a day before or a day after, then I wouldn't have to go at all, you know, that those people were just sitting pretty, and, you know, they didn't worry about losing their school deferment. If they wanted to take a gap year and go off and backpack in Europe, they could do it, you know, not me. I had to be at the armory once a month, and I had to wear this short-haired wig because your hair had to be short in the army. And this was in the early 70s when everybody had those, you know, big Jufros. And so, uh, you know, I had to go through all of this where other people were spared. So needless to say, uh, I was uh, a little resentful. Now, looking back, number one, I met my partner, David Isaacs, in the Army. He got transferred into the same reserve unit that I was in, and we met one summer camp. I would not have started my writing partnership had I not met David. We also got the opportunity to write an episode of MASH, and we never could have written MASH with any authority had we not lived through the military experience, you know, little incidents like the ice cream when it's zero degrees, you know, those are the kind of things that go on in the military. And if you have a certain command of the logic and the way it works, it really is a huge plus in writing a show like MASH. So we got a MASH assignment, and we did very well on that script, and so we got hired on the show, and 
quite honestly, MASH is what launched our career. And had we not had the opportunity to write for MASH, then, you know, who knows? It could have been three years writing crappy shows, and then we were done. So looking back, the Army and being draft number four turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to me. You just don't know. Now I'm going to flash forward to horrible period number two, and this uh, goes back to 1973, and uh, this is during my top 40 disc jockey era. And I was bouncing around from station to station, and I was doing uh, all nights and then evenings in San Bernardino, sitting in this cow pasture in the middle of nowhere in the Inland Empire, making $650 a a month. And I was on the radio. And I was, uh, you know, not the greatest disc jockey in the world. I was funny, although most program directors didn't think so and said to shut up. But I mean, you hear this voice. I don't have the classic radio voice. So I would get fired a lot. So it's 1973, and I actually I come back from Army summer camp, and the station in San Bernardino uh, fires me. Uh, I've been fired by a number of stations for uh, a number of different reasons. Um, one of the more common reasons is that the uh, station changes ownership. The new owners come in, and they listen to the talent, and they go, okay, get rid of this guy. (laughs) And that was what happened to me. So it's 1973, and I moved back into the marina area of Los Angeles to live with my parents to try to get another job. And the way you got a job in Top 40 Radio in those days, there were trade magazines that would come out once a week that would have job opportunities listed that WQXI in Atlanta is looking for a midday guy and W um, OLF in Syracuse needs somebody to work evening drive. And so you would mail off your tapes in those times, little reel to reels, you had your like tape and resume and, you know, and you sent it off to these radio stations along with contact information, basically uh, your phone number. And you waited for somebody to call. Back in those days, there was not even voicemail. So, you know, forget having a phone on your person. It's not like, well, you can just go out for the day and do whatever you want. And then you come back at three in the afternoon and check your messages. And, oh, the station in Omaha called. I'll call him back tonight or I'll call him back in the morning. No, you had to actually be there to take the call. So for months, my routine was going to the mailbox and applying for these jobs and then coming back to my parents' condo and sitting all day long waiting for the phone to ring, and it never did. It never did. Meanwhile, watching television, daytime television, I imagine it's very similar 
although you have way more options now. But like back in those days, you know, you only had a few channels. And when you're watching those daytime soap operas and game shows and reruns of old sitcoms, the basic message that they are sending you somewhat subliminally, but over and over and over again is you are a loser. All of these commercials were for these fly-by-night trade schools or, hey, you can get a loan so that you can make your bail or, hey, housewives, have you tried Duncan Hines cake mix? Your little hubby is going to love if you make him a cake. And you're just going, oh, my God, I could see why people want to kill themselves watching daytime television. So that was my life for like months and months because I was not getting anything. Um, The closest I came, there was an all-night position at KYNO in Fresno, all nights in Fresno. And this program director slash asshole kept me on the hook for six weeks. He wasn't sure. He heard the tape again. He liked it, but didn't like it. Um, you know, you know. But bottom line is, he was hoping that somebody else would send a tape that he liked better and could just hire him. And that's eventually what happened. But it took six weeks. And, you know, you talk about being crushed when you go, my God, if I can't get a fucking job doing all nights in Fresno, what kind of future do I have in this radio career? So I was pretty depressed about that. And kind of my only salvation, actually two things were my salvation. Number one, there was a a revival theater nearby called the Fox Venice. And again, we're talking in the early 70s, and this was before Turner Classic Movies, that type of thing. And the only way that you could see old movies, there were these revival houses in most cities, actually, and uh, and there's still a few. There's one in Los Angeles uh, at uh, the New Beverly Theater that's now owned by Quentin Tarantino, and they'll come out with a uh, calendar every month, and usually the programs change every two or three days, and it'll be two Humphrey Bogart movies, and then two classic horror movies, and then it will be um, you know, two Woody Allen comedies, and then it would be um, Lawrence of Arabia, you know, the films of David Lean every Friday and Saturday night. And uh, so, you know, I just got used to going to the Fox Venice Theater and seeing just about anything they had, and it really opened my eyes to cinema. I mean, I saw foreign films, you know, the films that you just sort of hear about and the people that you hear about, like Truffaut and Fellini, um, Kurosawa. Like, uh, what are these guys all about? Well, I found out. Um, I went to the Fox Venice, and it was just eye-opening. I saw so many movies 
that I had never seen before. And of course, you know, you could see old movies on television, but they were all hacked up and they were like a million commercials. Hey, Duncan Hines. Uh, But this was kind of a revelation to me. And, you know, I'm seeing Mean Streets. Wow, this is a good movie. Who's this Martin Scorsese guy? And uh, you say, oh, okay, I, w- I want to go see The Mousy's Falcon. I haven't seen that in a long time. And it's playing with this other thing called The Big Sleep. I don't know what The Big Sleep is, but eh, it's a double bill. Usually these were double bills. So I'll go see that. And The Big Sleep is, like, fantastic. It's, like, the best Philip Marlowe noir movie there is. And uh, I never would have stumbled upon it had it not been for the Fox Venice Theater. So I would do that at night. And uh, the other thing is I called David Isaacs and said, hey, remember me as the guy that you met in uh, summer camp? Um, You want to try writing a script? And so David and I began our partnership. And he had a job at the time. He was working at ABC in the film can division and uh, so he and I would get together every Sunday and we would try writing a pilot we knew nothing about writing or structure or anything but we had a good time and uh, at least it was something to do after months of this my father came to me one day God bless him and said get a fucking job Get any kind of job. His feeling was, and this was the big takeaway for me, you make your own momentum. Okay? If you're working on something, then you never know where it will lead or something else will break. But you have to be proactive. You have to try to generate your own momentum. And this is really true no matter what you do. I mean, if you're trying to be a a writer, you write your spec script, and if you just send it around and then spend the rest of your life playing video games, waiting for someone to hire you, you're not going to make it. You have to just keep writing and writing and networking and doing whatever you can. So, um, So I thought, okay, you know, radio wasn't going that well for me. And I applied a number of uh, ad agencies, see if I could get into advertising, you know, become a copywriter. I wasn't particularly excited about this because at the time, and it may have been a stereotype, but at the time, it, it appeared that advertising was this world of crushing pressure and that ad executives, madmen, all had ulcers. That was the big expression, ulcers. Everybody has ulcers if you're working at J. Walter Thompson. So um, I I tried out for that. Uh, A number of places had me write sample copy. Apparently I'm not good at that because nobody hired me. And eventually I was able to get a job. It was temporary, but it was a job at NBC in Burbank in the research department during pilot season because they 
needed extra help. They were pilot testing everything, and there was a lot of data that came through. And I was a psychology major at UCLA. You know, again, uh, how do these things play out? Okay, when I got into UCLA, I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to go into the radio TV department. And my father, again, God bless him, said, you know, everything you can learn about radio TV, you'll learn when you get the job. You're in an academic situation. Take advantage of it. Take an academic course load. So I was interested in psychology. That's what I took. I majored in psychology. I have my BA in psychology from UCLA. And it helped me get this job because I had a background in statistics. It also helped me write Frazier and Lilith. So you never really know. So now I'm working at NBC Burbank and I'm there about a month. And wouldn't you know, I finally get a call. A station wants me. And the station is WDRQ in Detroit. Now you're going, oh boy, Detroit. Well, Detroit is like a top 10 market. And this was 6 to 10 at night. This wasn't the all-night show. And this was paying a heck of a lot more than KYNO in Fresno would pay. And so I took that job. Now, again, it just goes to show you that, you know, I know your confidence, you know, your ego is horribly bruised, but it's also subjective. So here I am, unable to get a job doing all nights in Fresno, and yet a major market like Detroit thinks I'm good enough for a a prime shift. You just never know. You have to hang in there. So uh, that is what lifted me out of that period. And then after about a year of bouncing around from station to station again, although this time they were major market stations, but hearing the same thing, shut up, stop trying to be funny, just play the records. Uh, After that, I finally decided, screw it. I'm going to go back to L.A., and my sole objective is to try to break into television writing. I'll just get a job doing anything. I don't care as long as it's 9 to 5, and David and I can work seriously like several nights a week and weekends on writing spec scripts so that I can break into the industry. Now, you would think, okay, here comes another down period You know, you got a crappy job. I was teaching broadcasting at uh, one of those fly-by-night trade schools that advertised on daytime television, Uh, living in a crummy apartment, hardly any money at all. I was not in a relationship at the time. So you would think, man, okay, this is like another depressing period. I tell you what, it was anything but because I was so excited at the prospect of wanting to break into television. It's like this is now I know what I want to do, and it is this. And at the time, television comedy was really 
at an apex. You had the Mary Tyler Moore Show and All in the Family and MASH and Maud and Rhoda and The Odd Couple. So it was a great time to try to break in. Uh, the standards were very high, but it was also very inspiring. So I enjoyed that period. Um, I probably would not have enjoyed it if it lasted seven years <laughs> and and I didn't break in. But at least during that stretch, when I was quote unquote struggling, uh, I was very energized. And so I don't count that as a horrible time in my life. Now, I am going to talk about the time that I thought my career was over. Now we go to 1986. And David and I created a show for Mary Tyler Moore called Mary. And I just want to say at this point that it was a a major struggle for a number of reasons. Um, You know, not saying that we're not to blame for some of those reasons, but I'll just say that that is a separate saga which I am saving for the book that I'm going to write one day. For our purposes today, suffice to say that it was a struggle. David and I and our writing staff, although mostly David and I, were literally writing around the clock for like five, six months. When I say literally, I mean we'd be writing until five, six o'clock in the morning and sleep a couple hours in the office and then be down on the stage at nine o'clock for the start of another day. And it went on like this over and over and over again, writing weekends. Uh, This lasted for like about six months. And when it was finally over, we were burned out. Uh, I was like just uh, just a, a shell. You know, it's like one of those old you know, beat up and battered soldiers coming back from the Civil War. That was, that was me and my partner. And for like three, four months, I did nothing. I did nothing. I couldn't write a laundry list. I had no idea, uh, no ideas in my head for, uh, for things to write. Certainly no ideas for comedies. Um, I, yeah, I was just a shell, just kind of wandering around. I don't even remember what I did during those, those three month periods, but, um, but that was really terrible. Now it's summer and shows are back and, uh, they're in pre-production. We get a call from the Charles brothers saying, Hey, you guys want to write an episode of Cheers? And we had nothing else to do, and we like, uh, can we write an episode? I guess so. So we went down and we met with them, and we talked out a story. And as the story progressed, it turned into a two-parter because there was just too much of the story for one part. And... Uh, for you cheers aficionados this was the two-parter called never love a goalie 
and it was the episodes that introduced uh, the Jay Thomas character, Eddie LeBeck, uh, into the Cheers world and, uh, you know, his relationship with Carla. So we work out the story and we work out an outline and they say, okay, go off and write it. We say, well, the way we usually write is we have like a secretary or a writer's assistant uh, take down the dictation and we dictate the scripts. And uh, Les said, well, okay, you can use one of our writer's assistants and uh, you can use my office because I'm not in my office very often. So we had an office and an assistant and we were going to start writing the script on a Monday morning. I'm driving to Paramount that Monday, and it's about a 20-minute drive. And I'm thinking to myself, can we do this? Seriously, are we up for this? And at the time, I thought, you know, there's maybe better than a 50-50 chance that David and I are just going to sit there all day long and finally at the end of the day have to go to Glenn and Les and say, we can't do this. You're going to have to get somebody else to write the episode that we're done. You know, it's like, you know, time to find another career. So that's a certain amount of anxiety hanging over uh, my head as I entered the studio that Monday morning. So David and I get together and writer's assistant comes in. And again, we don't know this person. He doesn't know us. It's like, uh, okay, you two geniuses, what do you got? And he sits there with his steno pad kind of looking at us like, talk to me, make me laugh. Start saying funny things. And at first, uh, yeah, it was kind of debilitating. And David and I were just sort of sitting there looking at each other. And then we just, all right, well, let's let's get into it. Um, Interior bar day. Sam and the regulars are there, you know, uh, Cliff enters, blah, blah, blah. And uh, kind of we're thinking and we came up with a joke and, and David came up with another joke and I came up with a, a joke and we we're like, oh, okay, we could do that. We could do this. And all right, well, let's go with that. And slowly over the course of like a half an hour, we felt it was coming back. And the only way I can describe that is like in those Superman <laughs> movies and episodes of TV where he's relieved of the kryptonite. The kryptonite is taken away and slowly his powers start returning. And that's the way we felt. And by lunchtime, like we were back and I have to tell you, I have never, ever been more relieved in my life than I was that day 
and uh, and the fact that no, we we haven't lost it. That it's the ability that that stays with you. So that was certainly a silver lining. Another silver lining to that situation was David and I learned an awful lot about becoming showrunners. And when we got the opportunity in subsequent shows to be showrunners, man, we ran those shows so much better. And if I can go off on a brief tangent for a moment, the first pilot we did, this was a multi-camera pilot for NBC called Characters in 1979. And the show didn't go. And a few years later, David and I joined Cheers, the first season. We're working with Glenn and Les Charles. And we saw the way they handled problems. And there were things that came up that David and I didn't even recognize as problems that they did and they knew how to handle it. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, my God, if they had picked up our show, if NBC had gone with our show back in 1979, we would have been buried. (laughs) We were not at all prepared to really run a show and to deal with the 9,000 problems and issues and fires that that you have to put out, uh, it was an eye-opening. Well, we got that basic training education on The Mary Show, and it made running shows ourselves way easier. And then the final benefit is this is when I had that kind of midlife crisis and said, okay, what else is there? And I went back to my original childhood dream that I had never really surrendered, which was to be a Major League Baseball play-by-play announcer. And I said, okay, if I don't pursue it now, I never will. And that's when I went to the upper deck of Dodger Stadium with a tape recorder and began calling games. Partly it was after a year of being locked in a room for 16 hours a day just to be at a stadium and be outside and have there be lots of people and noise and cheering and and happy people eating hot dogs and drinking beer. They were all happy. Um, This was a a wonderful environment for me. So without that merry experience, which granted was very tough, and at the time I was just, just going, make it stop. But looking back, I never would have had a baseball career had it not been for that. So those are a few personal examples of how you can deal with tough situations. Um, You do come out of them and hopefully along the way you were able to bring some good things that you were able to use later.
All right. Was that inspiring? Was that inspiring enough? Okay, you're probably depressed. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening. That'll do it. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, Howard Hoffman, to John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. Uh, I am available via email if you want to get in touch, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I am also on Twitter at Ken Levine, and I'm on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. If you haven't already, please subscribe. Uh, I shamelessly would love a um, a five-star or 12-star review. And uh, I'll be back next week with uh, more nonsense right here on... Hollywood and the Vine!